This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, who's our card for this week? Our card for this week is Ray Quinones. Ray Quinones, shortstop for the Seattle Mariners, card number 358. Okay, card 358. I'm pulling him up on the Jumbotron right now. And Ray is, I think, the first of the Seattle Mariners that we've had on the podcast so far. This is a very boring uniform. You've got Ray in a batting stance. He's he's very focused on the pitch coming in. I'd say a couple defining features of him at the plate. Thick black mustache and thick black eye black. A cutoff long sleeve t-shirt underneath that boring Seattle Mariners <laughs> uniform. I, I like the early 80s and late 70s Mariners uniforms that have the upside down trident i prefer that uniform to this one with the kind of bubbly balloon s it's kind of like you said it's just kind of a boring uniform ray quinones is number 51 on the seattle mariners we can come back around to talk about that yeah we haven't talked about a mariner yet ray turned 57 on november 11th happy birthday ray and there was a really interesting saber bio the society for american baseball research has bios of certain players and this bio of ray quinones it seemed at every turn there was a twist uh, or something odd and so great job by john gregory at saber on that bio i recommend everyone read it and it served as the basis for a lot of what we're going to talk about today ray was a really amazing prospect but it just didn't quite happen. And so we're left with some very strange stories about a guy who was out of the league by 1989 and kind of just fell out of baseball. He only played four seasons in the majors, but played for three teams in that time and had a a pretty odd career. And in this picture is 24 years old and coming off of a really good season, about to have his best season, but was also a year away from being out of the league. Flipping to the back of the card, raised 5'11", 185, a right-handed batter, signed by the Red Sox in 1982 as a free agent, born and raised in Rio Piedras, Puerto Rico. And at this point in 1982, players born in Puerto Rico were not subject to the Major League Draft, as we talked about with Juan Nieves, where a player in mainland United States would have to Uh, go through the major league draft players from puerto rico could sign with whatever team scouted them ray's neighborhood one scout said that he was from a quote very very bad part of puerto rico at least it was described as such in the late 70s early 80s when ray was coming up matt i asked you if you had ever been to rio piedras the neighborhood in san juan it looked like there wasn't much there and i know you've had some travels in puerto rico Yes, I've been to I've been to Puerto Rico a few times, and San Juan. Every time I go, I spend some time in San Juan. Most of the time in the tourist areas on the north side of the city, but each time I've been able to explore different parts of San Juan that you might not normally see around the hotel, which has been fun and really interesting to see. Rio Piedras has a main university in the kind of northern side of the neighborhood, and that's where I had spent more of the time, just kind of looking for. Uh, there's a lot of public art 
throughout the island and definitely throughout San Juan. So that's the types of attractions that I ended up finding a lot of. So that's where Ray is from and where he would return to in in the off season. He would return back to Rio Piedra. So that's where he made his home on this card as well. After being signed at 18, he was a, a Red Sox prospect. He went you know, straight from Puerto Rico to Elmira, New York, which is on the New York-Pennsylvania border. So Ray was was a 5'11", 160-pound shortstop when he came into the league, when he came into the minors. As you see on the back of the card, he hit 12 home runs as a 18-year-old, 19-year-old, and slugged nearly 500 in that first year. Peter Gammons called him a Frank Robinson lookalike, which is odd because Ray is a skinny shortstop. But that comparison stuck with him that he was like Frank Robinson and had a swing like Frank Robinson. But that just seemed like such a strange comment. I can't imagine that this guy looks like Frank Robinson. In looking at some videos, I couldn't really see the resemblance. But I think what they meant is that Ray had a lot of power for a shortstop. And you can see in the next season, in 1984, he again hits 11 home runs and 30 doubles in 84 in Winston-Salem. He was very highly thought of as a Red Sox prospect. In 1984, he was the number two prospect in the Red Sox system. That system included Ellis Burks, Mike Greenwell, Oil Can Boyd, our old friend, and Roger Clemens was the only prospect ahead of him in 1984. Defense was an issue for Ray. Uh, in A ball, he had 50 errors and a 930 fielding percentage, so not great. But he was still very high on their list. And by 1985, Roger Clemens is now in the major leagues, and Ray is the top Red Sox prospect in 1985. At AA, showing a good eye, 73 walks in 1985. His average dropped down a little bit, so he's only hitting 257. Still had nine home runs, pretty good for a shortstop. And his fielding got a little bit better as he moved along. And by 1986, he was a short step away from the pros. And obviously 1986 for the Red Sox is a year that the team's having a lot of success. They end up getting to the World Series that year. Ray makes the move up to AAA. So he's at Pawtucket and plays in 24 games there but then finally is called up to the majors in 1986. It was long expected that Ray would be the starting shortstop for this Red Sox team. Again in 1986, another comparison to Frank Robinson. This time, the great Ted Williams said that Ray's swing reminded him of Frank Robinson. He, he later told the Red Sox not to mess with Quinones' swing. With a swing like that, Ray could win the batting title. Maybe should point out that Ted Williams thought that Ray was great, but Ted Williams maybe didn't have the greatest run as a manager. So <laughs> he had, you know, he was a manager for four seasons and had a record that was 90 games under 500. So maybe Ted's eye for the ball was better than his eye for player talent. But Ray was, again, highly coveted by the Red Sox. And like you said, was called up to the big leagues in 1986 to this team that was in the heart of a, a pennant run. Just kind of strange, David, to see, you know, in none of the years in the minors here and none of the majors that are covered on this card, is he hitting 300? Or is he having, like, more than 12 home runs? Or is he, ha like, 
what on earth did these all these guys see in his swing that like didn't do we know any more about what they meant by he has such a great swing if he's not actually if he's playing 134 games and hitting 257 you know in yeah i think that I part of it. it was his youth and they just saw a guy who had maybe an effortless swing and was young and they thought you know what with the right dedication and dedicated coaching we can get him on this trajectory and make him better so he there's lots of greatness expected and he comes up to the majors and in his very first game he he shows a flash of greatness two for three two doubles a walk and two RBIs in his first game. Ray and the Red Sox started out well between May 17th and June 4th of 1986. The Red Sox won 15 of the first 17 games that Ray was up for. And in those games, he hit 275 with 12 walks. So he was taking pitches, doing the right things. His, his defense started out okay, no errors in the first three games. But then over... The rest of his time with the Red Sox in 86, he fell down to a 940 fielding percentage. So not good. And by August, he had fallen off average-wise as well to a 237 average. Part of his slump coincided with the Red Sox slump that partially has been traced to Oil Can Boyd and Oil Can Boyd's suspension. Mm. I raise this because Ray when he was with the Red Sox, was a tenant of Oil Can Boyd. <laughs> and if you'll recall, Oil Can Boyd had an incident with the police in which he was roughed up and ended up um, with an injury that lasted into 1987. In the vicinity during that incident was Ray Quinones. So there were some questions about whether he was too involved with Oil Can whether he was falling into some of the same issues that oil can fell into. I haven't found anything specific that questions Ray for drug use or anything like that, but maybe his proximity, his youth, and being a little bit impressionable, the Red Sox were afraid that maybe he would fall into that same lifestyle and a lifestyle of drug use. And according to some sources, Ray was collateral damage in that suspension and fight, and he was traded away and traded to the Mariners. So first of all, as a guide to listeners, the Oil Can Boyd episode is episode 704, Dennis Boyd, and we do go into that incident. And the fun fact on the back of the card for Ray is the this way to the clubhouse that he was traded by the Red Sox to the Mariners for Dave Henderson and Spike Owen. August 17th, 1986, the Mariners received Mike Brown and Mike Trujillo and John Christensen. And regardless of the actual reason for it, the Red Sox management said that they were looking for another bat and a steadier shortstop. Ray was a rookie shortstop who had made a bunch of errors, even in the minors, and maybe they were just willing to to cut bait and they got a, a couple decent players and guys who ended up coming up big for them in the playoffs and World Series. Dave Henderson had a rough 1986 for the Red Sox, but he hit an iconic home run that extended the ALCS and allowed them to get to the World Series, and he hit 400 in the World Series. Spike Owen 
hit 186 in the regular season for the Red Sox, but hit 429 in the ALCS and 300 in the World Series. So these guys ended up contributing. Unfortunately, Ray, when he went to the Mariners, hit 189 in 36 games in Seattle. Oh, that is that is a tough fall after having been the top prospect for the Red Sox. On a team that was going to go to the playoffs, on a team that was up five and a half games in first place to go to the Seattle Mariners, who ended the season with 95 losses. I, I recently watched this this documentary series by Dorktown. Dorktown is a SB Nation miniseries on YouTube, and it's a six-part, three-hour and 45-minute documentary about the Seattle Mariners. Thank you to friend of the show, Kim, for telling me to watch this Mariner documentary. But it traces the entire history of the team all the way back to an arsonist in the 1930s and how he burned down this stadium. And it's really a very interesting documentary that goes through how the Seattle pilots were founded and then moved to Milwaukee. And then the Mariners came to replace them seven years later and play in the kingdom. And Fun fact, Dorktown is the, is the name that the kids in high school used to describe the lunch table I ate at. <laughs> yes, that, that makes sense. For the entirety of their existence up to, let's call it the Ray Quinones era, this was a terrible team. They had 400 losses in their first four seasons. Their best season between 1977 and 1987 was 1987. Thanks, Ray. But they went 78 yes. and 84. They were not a good team. And uh, they never finished above 500 until uh, 1991. So you just spoiled, David, that... <laughs> that 1987 was, you know, the best season the Mariners had had, you know, in their existence. What what else happened in 1987 for Ray? That being said, and looking at the back of Ray's card, it looks like he had a pretty good year, right? Like 276, 12 home runs, 56 RBIs for a shortstop. You know, we just last week talked about Steve Jeltz and how he went four years without a home run. There wasn't a lot of power in shortstops in the 1980s. That 12 home runs was good enough for seventh best in the major leagues among shortstops. He had a pretty good season, but it started oddly. He was late for spring training, and he claimed that he had visa problems. And he's from Puerto Rico. Yes. <laughs> when you don't need a visa, <laughs> you are a citizen. Yes. You do not need a visa if you live in Puerto Rico. He finally shows up to spring training. And the first interview he did, he was laying on the floor in the locker room and refused to get up for reporters and just laid there and did his interview from the floor. Among other things, he told the writers that he didn't need baseball. And he told them that he owned a liquor store in Puerto Rico and that he would just live off of that. So this is a 20 three-year-old guy who just took his time coming back from Puerto Rico telling reporters that I don't need this. So the first half of the season though, he hits 289 with nine home runs. He hit 318 in July. The team was actually over 500 in April and May, like which is by Mariners standards fantastic and showing some signs of being something other than complete garbage. But he ended up with the seventh highest home run total in the majors among shortstops, ninth in RBIs. Defense was still an issue, and he actually had the most 
errors in the American League, period, with 25. And he missed 27 games and still led the league in errors. Again, compared to some of the other players that we've profiled so far in the series, David, the the thought of a baseball player in their second season saying, yeah, I don't even, I don't even need to be here. I don't even need baseball. I've got a liquor store back home that I can run. <laughs> has got to be a very different mindset and attitude than so many of the players who worked for years in the minors or had worked, you know, had been in the majors for 10, 15 years and were working really hard. This has got to be a culture clash. Or guys who worked to get out of a situation probably so they didn't have to work at a liquor store. That working in a liquor store would be a more desirable outcome than the path that they were already on. For Ray to say, to give up something that I think everybody's, a lot of people would see as a dream is an interesting and maybe telling part of Ray's psyche and maybe leads us into our next Ray story that he was unavailable for pinch hitting duty because he was in the locker room and he was playing Super Mario Brothers and the coach called him to pinch hit and he was in the locker room playing Mario Brothers. He was, he made it to the seventh <laughs> level in one, in one story I saw seventh level in another, I saw that he was on level eight, four, the specificity of that one. That's the last level. Yeah. You got to go with the second one as, as listeners to our, our other podcast, Nintendo power today <laughs> will, will know getting to the seventh level of super Mario. The original super Mario is not that hard to do. You just need to warp twice from level, I think, 1-2, you can get to 4-1, and then from 4-1 to 7-1 very easily. So this is not that... So the level 7 was probably a reporter who is uninformed. But I, I'm i pretty impressed in 1987 of someone in their 20s being really good at the at, at Super Mario. I don't know. Like, I was, I was 10 at the time, and I was the best. <laughs> so I would have thought that that old guy wouldn't have had a chance. Baseball players known for their hand-eye coordination... Maybe oh, that true. kind of hand-eye coordination true. is what made people think that Ray was going to be a great. So, so skipping out on the manager to play Nintendo, I can totally understand this, but I imagine it would get some people mad. You found another example, David, of of Ray kind of showing, let's say, showing a work ethic that's out of line with most major league standard procedure. Either that, um, or he's a trying to be a Jedi. so ray is in this meeting with dick williams who's the manager of the mariners the club president chuck armstrong and the general manager dick balderson and ray says i'm a good shortstop right armstrong says you're a very good shortstop ray and ray says i could be the best shortstop in the american league and armstrong says you could and quinones says i'm so good that I don't need to play every day. And everybody just kind of stares at him. And he says, I don't need to play every day. And you guys have other guys who should play so they can get better. So I don't need to play tonight. (laughs) Oh, I love it. His logic is outstanding. And he gets to what he wants, which is that he doesn't want to play. And they subbed him out. I read in 
this one piece that somebody started calling him Wally Pip in reference to the guy who Lou Gehrig took his spot. The person who took Ray's spot ended up not being very good either. So Ray got his job back. He, you know, he he didn't have to sit on the bench for for the rest of it. But that kind of work ethic is maybe what what ended up prematurely ending Ray's career. Yeah, Ray Quinones, the Bartleby the Scrivener <laughs> of the nineteen eighty eight Tops podcast. Now going into nineteen eighty eight, we've got more Ray being Ray once again being late for spring training. This time, Ray just didn't communicate with the team at all. The GM said, there's phones in Puerto Rico. You can call us and let us know where you're at. And when he did finally get a hold of Ray, Ray was complaining about his contract. So he ended up getting a raise. (laughs) But it's just one in, in a series of kind of escalating weird events for him. He ended up getting raises, I think, every year that he was with with the Mariners, you know, he started at $85,000 a year, was raised to 120000 in 88. And so he gets this a decent raise and finally shows up back at, back at spring training. But further weird incidents took place throughout the year. He left the team without letting anybody know to go to a funeral, which would probably be a reasonable excuse to leave the team. But you just have to tell somebody. you should say you should just let him know he missed some other games due to various injuries the team would have him x-rayed and nothing serious would show up but he would complain about injuries at one point he threatened a reporter over a negative story only to have it pointed out that that reporter that he threatened was not the one who wrote it nor was he with the newspaper that printed the story to which ray responded they all look alike I don't know if that's a reference to the newspaper or to the reporters. (laughs) Maybe maybe it's the reporters who have like the little card with press stuck in their hat and they all kind of, you know, with their... Oh yeah, they do all look alike. (laughs) Unfortunately, the Mariners were terrible. Back to being their terrible Mariner selves. They were 68 and 93 and were last in the American League West. But Ray in spite of all of that, had his best season of his career. Again, hit 12 home runs, but 1988 was not nearly as power-heavy a year as 87, and that was good for sixth amongst shortstops. Uh, He was ninth in RBIs with 52 and hit 30 doubles, which was fourth among shortstops. He actually was performing pretty well in 87 and 88, earning his paycheck a little bit questionable defense but hitting well enough that they could look past it and being a pretty good player on a pretty terrible team so going into 1989 the mariners fire their general manager and the manager so ray has a chance in 1989 to come prove himself to the new team that's what you would think but david he does it again like no showing for spring training he had already gotten a raise last time to get to show up to spring training and then and then just doesn't show again. I, I feel like a disappointed teacher with Ray Kidiotis. Like, yeah, you know, Ray, like just it, that ke- keeps coming up. We in gave these you quotes every chance. Is, Ray. You have every opportunity to fix this all, problem. You're playing baseball. You're good at it. Like, come yeah, play baseball. this time he was in Puerto Rico and. 
he was being fined $1,000 a day for missing each day of training. The Mariners sent their head scout down there to try to find him, a guy named Roger Jungward. His friends call him Roger. Yeah, I'm going to call him Roger. Roger went to Ray's girlfriend's house, or wife. I've seen differing, conflicting reports here. And Ray was hiding in another house across the street, like hiding behind some curtains. So the scout (laughs) finally gets a hold of him and tells him, like, if you come to camp, play this one year, if you play as well as you did before, or better, you can have a a million-dollar contract next year. And Ray tells him that he doesn't need the money because he had $30,000 in the bank. Regardless of him saying that, a week later, he did show back up at camp. And then in 1989, he he was paid $215,000 to play for the Mariners. So it seems to be working that he just keeps getting raises. But it is this, like, short-sighted, I don't need this. I can do something else. I got this money in the bank. I'm going to be okay. And unfortunately, this time... The season didn't go well for Ray. He played in seven games under a new manager, Jim Lefebvre, and he hit 105 and made three errors in those seven games. And the coach said, you got to get this guy out of here. He's driving me crazy. That's a quote. (laughs) (laughs) And so they traded him. They had one opportunity to trade him. The GM said, we only had one team that wanted him. So they traded Ray along with Bill Wilkinson to the Pirates for Mike Dunn, who was a 1988 Tops All-Star rookie, Mark Merchant, who was the number two pick in the 1987 draft, right after Ken Griffey Jr., and Mike Walker, who was described as a prize pitching prospect. So the Pirates were willing to give up three decent players for 25-year-old Ray Quinones, who doesn't seem to want to play baseball. That's, that's incredible. That I mean, I was going to ask how that makes you feel as a pirate or a Pirates fan, not, knowing what you know about Ray, Ray Quinones. Not good, because not good. I don't know if it's any consolation that the players who the Pirates gave up didn't really end up panning out as as well as might be expected. But nor did Ray. Jim Leland yeah. at the time said that he thought that they were getting someone who wasn't the best of guys, but had talent. However, what he found was that they got a guy who was a good guy, but didn't show his talent. He said that he could put up with errors, but he couldn't put up with errors with no effort. And unfortunately, it just seemed like Ray didn't want to play baseball. Leland thought that he was going to be a guy who would show up late to practice or not show up at all and be a problem off the field and get into trouble. And he said there was none of that and that he was just a good guy who jokes around and is personable and didn't have any problems. He just was too lackadaisical and maybe couldn't be coached. Unfortunately, after 71 games, he hit 209 for the Pirates. And rather than send him to AAA or try to coach him into something, they just released him. Wow. Oh, man. It's so sad. (laughs) It's an odd case because I was reading some some quotes from his old roommate. His roommate with the Mariners said that they were from a similar area in Puerto Rico. But when they would go back to Puerto Rico, he just wouldn't see Ray and wouldn't hear from him. You know, it just seems like Ray enjoyed being a player for these teams and enjoyed being a, a team guy, but just didn't really feel like doing the work and didn't 
couldn't focus on the work. He would play winter ball after his major league career was over and at first would show up late and then just stopped showing up at all. But oddly, if you look at his stats, in 1999, he showed up on an independent league team. So he was 35 years old and showed up for the Atlantic City Surf and hit 235 with four home runs, but then just kind of disappears again. So it's a little bit of a mystery what's happened to him. In 2012, a Yankees World Series ring was sold at auction that had the name Ray Quinones on it. According to some accounts, Quinones had an administrative position with the Yankees in 1996. That ring sold for $15,000, but later the Yankees were unable to confirm whether Quinones had ever worked for them or received a World Series ring. It's a little bit of a mystery, but in 2015, the most recent thing that I found on this bio of Ray was that another former player in Puerto Rico said that Ray was operating in a, quote, dangerous area, and hopefully one day we don't see him in jail. Sometimes I can find information that's close enough where I can kind of guess at where a guy has been or where, you know, maybe he's retired. I do some sleuthing on this. You know, we've we found where Tim Piznarski works, but I, you know, couldn't find a LinkedIn or a Facebook for this Ray Quinones that made sense. So maybe he is running his liquor store or maybe it's something worse and sadder. Before we close the book on Ray, you have a note here about the number 51 that he wore. And kind of what could have been with a number 51 in Seattle. So what do you mean by that? I thought it was interesting that Ray wore the number 51 when he was with the Red Sox and then kept that number when he went to the Mariners. That number should be retired twice in Seattle. Once Ray left the team, Randy Johnson came to the Mariners and picked that number 51. He wore it for 10 seasons And then in 2001, Ichiro chose the number 51. I'm not saying that Ray could have been in that caliber of player, but he could have been a a solid offensive shortstop for a good number of years for that Seattle Mariners team. He was on this list of busted prospects, and he was 26th on this list. And it was mostly because he he just couldn't get it together. And it was a motivational issue, and it wasn't anything with his skill set or with his athletic ability it was his it was all in his head i mentioned that in 1987 the mariners used their number 1 pick on ken griffey junior i will definitively say there has never been a number 1 pick in the major leagues who met and exceeded his expected output greater than ken griffey junior but i recently read an article that very early in his minor league career, Ken Griffey Jr. attempted suicide. And it was a story I had never heard. But this is an 18-year-old kid who grew up around Major League Baseball, grew up with all of the support system of Major League Baseball, and everyone knew he was going to be a star. Ray Quinones had none of that. And maybe if Ray had had some of that support and some of that guidance and a family or something around that understood him or tried to figure out what he was, what his deal was... Maybe he would have, some of that odd behavior might have been a little bit mitigated. The Mariners trainer said that Ray was one of the most talented players that he ever saw. 
and fans can kind of be resentful of a guy if he has all of the physical tools but doesn't put it all together. Then maybe we should be more forgiving of a guy who just physically is there but mentally just can't do it. Thank you for that, David. Something that's occurred to me in hearing this takes me back to Walden and that Ray Quinones is the Henry David Thoreau of the 1988 Tops podcast so far. I wish to suggest that a man may be very industrious and yet not spend his time well. There is no more fatal blunderer than he who consumes the greater part of his life getting his living. Or... It would be glorious to see mankind at leisure for once. It is nothing but work, work, work. Many a forenoon have I stolen away, preferring to spend thus the most valued part of the day. For I was rich, if not in money, in sunny hours and summer days, and spent them lavishly. Nor do I regret that I did not waste more of them in the workshop or, or the, the liquor store. Desk. Or the liquor store in Puerto Rico or back home. And so... I was trying to think of how to say it, that maybe you and I, I think, know a lot of people who are incredibly competitive and motivated. But yes. then you also know the guy who, like, can step on a basketball court and sink a three, but isn't going to foul you. <laughs> I feel like Ray Kenyonis yes. is that guy yeah. that, like, will hit a home run in a beer league softball game and also just, like not be a jerk about it or like just has those physical attributes and yet he's just down to hang out and i feel like that maybe didn't work yeah. in major league baseball you know for obvious reasons well i i think that we've seen from many top performers in games and contests like this their competitive nature is what drives them to practice more and more and to be the best and to to optimize their performance, to get the most out of their teammates, to obsess and to make it not just a job, you know, but a lifestyle and to be the best, to be number one, that that is a way to achieve. And it is very hard for someone who doesn't put in the time and practice to be the best. But there are plenty of people who have some talent and they don't really care to be the best. They're not competitive to be the best. And in the meantime, they're playing the game for fun. They're getting some reward from it. And But then they're like, ah, I'm not sure I really want to sacrifice all of this to be the best. I'm not sure I like what that life would look like. I would actually um, encourage people to watch. This is the recent movie produced by Michael Phelps about Olympic athletes and about you know, about some of the mental health issues that come from being an obsessive athlete for your, you know, the first 15 to 20 years of your life. And what has sometimes, you know, led to very extreme circumstances for Olympic athletes. The Way of Gold is the name of the movie. And there are several examples of Olympic athletes who, even when finally competing and winning a gold medal, then are left with the next day. Okay, now what? Okay, now what? And for professional athletes, that's a, that's a really tough thing. In a future episode, we can dig into how this type of lifestyle is 
how it fits in the framework of capitalism and socialism. But we will leave that for a different episode, David. Thank you for this story. And, and thank you to Ray out there. And thank you to you listening at home. If you still subscribe to Nintendo Power Magazine, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.